3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resistance of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning to Wednesday Breakfast listeners. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. My name's Claudia and I'll be hosting the breakfast program solo today. Unfortunately, Jacob has turned COVID positive, so they'll be isolating. Big shout out to Jacob there. And uh, Grace has taken a trip back to see her family in Malaysia, which is wonderful, so we'll miss her. But we have lots of guests joining us live this morning, so there'll be lots to listen to, including some music uh, from Australian artists. But first up, we're going to be talking about cooperatives. Now, we all complain about capitalism and the corporatisation of our world. But what are the alternatives? Well, we're going to be speaking with someone who comes from a cooperative environment in the Basque country in Spain, a very successful uh, venture there, and that's Ana Aguera. After that, at about 7.30, we're going to be hearing from some of the participants in Australia's inaugural Trans Pride March, which took place in Nam last Sunday. And then at about quarter to eight, we'll be hearing from Associate Professor Nicholas Wood from the University of Sydney, who'll be sharing the latest on the new strains of coronavirus and which vaccine is best to fight them. And then at around 10 past eight to round up the show, we'll be joined by Dr Vivian Gerrand from the Centre for Resilience and Inclusive Societies at Deakin University. She'll be talking about a new exhibition opening next week titled Objects of Everyday Resilience, the relationship between material things and resilience. But before we get started, I wanted to give you an update on the plastics and whale conservation story that we brought to you last week. Listeners who tuned in will recall we spoke with plastics expert Shane Kukal from the Australian Marine Conservation Society who shared the good news that the International Whaling Commission had supported a global plastics reductions treaty among its members. However, in what seems like a game of snakes and ladders, the very same day, the Australian soft plastics recycling company Redcycle suspended its collection service nationwide in Australia, meaning that supermarkets like Coles and Woolworths, where I diligently every week uh, package up all my soft plastic packagings and uh, return them to their bins, well... Unfortunately, that service will no longer be available at the moment because the collection service, Red Cycle, has suspended its uh, practice. Shane Kukau described this as a shocking blow for turtles and whales. As we know, soft plastics are one of the most lethal plastics for ocean wildlife 
and he talked last week, of course, about the impact on Wales in particular. Interestingly, he points out that the uses for recycled soft plastics are actually very limited. So while this is devastating news, he emphasises the focus should remain on reducing plastic production in the first place. So his big push is to call on the government to mandate plastic reduction targets for big companies and also for large corporations themselves to step up in their efforts to reduce plastic use in their packaging. So I just wanted to give you that update because it seemed like we were on a good news uh, track last week and the very same day uh, this announcement came out. So yeah, let's hope that Red Cycle gets its act together, but also that our big corporations try and do the right thing. Hmm. We're going to head to a song now, and then when we come back, we'll be speaking with Ana Aguere about cooperative ecosystems. And thanks for joining us again. Lucky find something else, somebody turn 
Hi there, music lovers. It's Jane and Joe here from Music, music Matters. Matters. We're here to remind and encourage you to either renew or subscribe to this extraordinary volunteer-based community radio station that is 3CR. Why? Well, for over 45 years, since 1976, it has provided a space for underrepresented voices and independent musicians outside of the commercial mainstream. We curate and talk to artists that entertain and inform you, whether it's personal, political or both. 3CR plays at least 55% Australian music each week, but Music Matters is always way above that. So the choice is yours, though it will be good for your soul. $35 unwaged or concession. $75 wage. And $150 for solidarity, band or organisation. Go online for further details. 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Or ring the station during business hours 9419 8377. You can listen to Music Matters from noon till 2 every, every Friday. Friday. Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. 
yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Hello and welcome back to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Claudia here with you and thanks again if you've just tuned in for joining us. In a world dominated by top-down centralised regimes and shareholder capitalist models, many people are looking for alternatives that provide a different way of doing things. The cooperative form of organisation based on values of fairness and equality, where workers take a greater role in ownership and decision-making, is one such model. We are very fortunate and excited to have as our guest this morning Ana Aguere, co-founder and worker-owner at Tazabayez, a cooperative organisation in the Basque country of Spain's north. Tazabayez is a cooperative organisation working closely with the very famous worker-owned cooperative group Modragan. Anna is a graduate of the Modrigan Team Academy and plays an active part in the Platform Cooperative Coalition, a movement that asks the crucial question, what kind of new economy do we want to create? And aims to optimise the digital economy for all people rather than just a wealthy few. Anna is also the International Cooperative Alliance Youth Committee representative as of April this year. She's visiting Australia to be a guest speaker at the Building the Social Economy Cooperatively event hosted by RMIT Forward, taking place this afternoon in Carlton. She joins me now to share the main themes for this event and also tell us more about her experience working in the cooperative system. Welcome, Anna. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for sharing your time. I, I know you've got such a busy schedule while you're here and also a little bit jet lagged. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm doing very good with the times, but yeah, it's early. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what influenced you to become involved in cooperative organising? Um, so I am um, originally from the Basque Country, as you said, and it's a um, area of the world that it's actually very cooperative in a, in itself, right? So a lot of the companies and the big industries are cooperative. So for us, it's fairly natural that some of um, some part of the of the of the population or the young population of any background would end up working or at least related to a cooperative model. Uh, we're talking about Mondragon Group, for instance, has eighty five thousand workers, but in a territory of 2.1 million, that it's the Basque Country, we have more than 1,200 co-ops. And mostly, most of them are worker-owned. So it would have been natural that I would have ended up in uh, something like that. But I was even more involved because I uh, was the first generation of uh, leadership, entrepreneurship and innovation, cooperative entrepreneurship program by Mondragon University. And so during my whole four years of uh, college or university, I was actually creating already a worker-owned co-op alongside uh, some of my classmates. And when we graduated, well, naturally, we, we ended up uh, 
spinning off as a co-op. So it was all by chance because I was going to be an engineer and ended up in this program, but uh, it worked. Well, that sounds fantastic, and I'll definitely be asking you about the cooperative that you're involved in in a moment. But for our listeners um, this morning, can you just go over what the key features of a cooperative are and how they're different to a corporate organisational model um, in their ownership structure and operations? Of course. Um, So when we talk about cooperatives, I normally talk especially about worker-owned co-ops that I think are the main issue in my days here in Australia, that are uh, companies that are owned by the workers. And how is this important? And for me, how this uh, specific model of cooperatives uh, represents like a utopia of cooperatives is because um, the decision makers, the owners, and the people that manage are the ones that suffer the consequences. So Sometimes when we talk about managers or when we talk about decision makers or shareholders, uh, they take decisions that aren't going to implicate their own selves. But in worker-owned co-ops, the people that are taking the decisions, the work, the people in the director positions or the people that are the shareholders, whatever decision they take, it, it uh, directly influences the way they work, right? So these people um, are participating actively in decision-making and management of the company. And what that does implies exactly that they need to be very educated of what is going on in the company. So never again would you hear, oh, I didn't know that or I don't know what's going on financially in my company, despite what is your role, because at the end of the day, when you need to participate, you need to be educated. So I think they are very transparent, very democratic, uh, a lot uh, of empowering of workers, but also shared uh, instruments uh, that share wealth, that are just and that dignify work. Can you give us some examples of how it works in practice? Yeah. Um, So, for example, when you need to sometimes companies, for example, regular companies, when they need to approve the year, uh, the year's planned, it's uh, just approved by the shareholders. Right. So there are people that normally don't even work in the companies for the cooperatives is uh, once a year, there's a general assembly. And that means all the workers come together. So you stop. Uh, produce, uh, producing and everything, you stop and everyone comes together. It can be seven people, 30 people, 4,000 people, right? Um, and they need to approve the accountings of, of, the, of the past year, the budget for the next year, the working, uh, the working plan for the year ahead. Uh, they need to approve the management uh, capacity of the management team. Everything is done by the workers. And sometimes we think, oh, cooperatives are not very agile because they need to get together for everything, right? So imagine a 4,000-people company. Uh, we need to buy computers. Let's sit 4,000 workers together and decide whether we need to do computers. No, we still have have management teams, but those management teams are made up by workers. So that means that people from all stages and all layers of the hierarchy of the organization are involved in decision-making. And although they are a small group, they advocate for the good of the big group. Well, it sounds absolutely ideal. Um, (laughs) Are there any problems that tend to come up in this type of organization that is common? 
Of course, like we, we are like, there is no, no such thing as a perfect organization. And that means that a lot of the times that um, you need to be very well educated and people are like, okay, well, I don't have time because I need to do my job. Or there's people that take participation for granted. It's like democracy, right? Sometimes you look at polls when uh, you're, you're going to have elections soon. So when you look at polls, people are like, oh, you know, I, this percentage of the population didn't even go to vote. And those are people that take for granted the fact that they can vote and that they can participate in decision-making. And same goes for cooperatives. There is no such thing as perfect organisation. Thank you. And your own cooperative, Tazabayas, can you tell yes. us about that? Yeah, very impressive pronunciation too. Um, Tazabayas is a, it's a, stands for And Why Not in Basque, our local language. And it's a, a innovation consultancy and we work a lot in education, so educating people but. Um, in the educational level, like universities of a school where we teach entrepreneurship and cooperative entrepreneurship, but also educating companies and generating training programs for other institutions, cooperative and non-cooperative. And then we have a more regular consultancy that it's, uh, has major work in communication and uh, visual communication and also cooperative development and participatory dynamics. Wow. Now, that's just one organisation in a whole group of organisations that are part of the Modrigon Cooperative Consortium. Can you tell us more about Modrigon? Mondragon is uh, the biggest cooperative corporation in the world. And uh, just for, for you guys to know, it's at, uh, among the 10th biggest groups in, the, in, the, in Spain, industrial groups in Spain. And it's made up of over 80 co-ops, uh, worker-owned cooperatives, and 85,000 people worldwide. And it's, um, it's a spe- special because it's worker-owned, and its main uh, business is industry. So most of the times when people think about co-ops, and even my own, uh, they think, oh, service companies, right? But Mondragon is very specific because they do industrial work. Some of the cutting-edge industrial uh, peacemaking uh, companies uh, in the world at Mondragon. So I am sure that in any of your home appliances or in any of your cars, uh, there are pieces that have been made by Mondragon. For those of you that may be uh, bicycle or cycler uh, fans, uh, there is a big Mondragon group uh, bicycle company that is Orvea or Via, and they do some of the best bicycles in the world. So you can find anything done by Mondragon. And the beauty is that they have a very good structure of solidarity that they put together resources, funds, they have um, social and health security as well as pension coverage specific for the co-ops. So they make sure that they have a stronger system of solidarity and support than just if they were uh, standing alone co-ops. Yeah, and I'm interested to know, you talked a little bit about the Basque country um, always having a a history of cooperative organisation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the social and or political climate that influenced the growth of cooperatives um, and particularly has helped support Modrigan in its growth? I think that would be really interesting for <laughs> listeners who are, you know, keen to know more and, and, and people in all countries, but in Australia, to, to learn um, from your uh, example and perhaps replicate some of the systems. Yeah, some some people say that sometimes when when people come to Mondragon and we have around five thousand people coming to visit from all over the world every year, um, more or less. Um, so a lot of people ask, like, "Oh, you think it's replicable?" And there is a lot of people that say, "Well, I don't think so because it's very rooted in the culture." Me myself, I'm a big believer that yes, it is replicable. 
So I do think that the Basque country has some solidarity features that are intrinsic to the culture, and therefore it's kind of a good melting pot for uh, cooperatives to arise. But we need to remember that, for example, when Mondragon started, uh, we were talking about end of the Civil War, very poor population that had most likely fought in the uh, Republican side, right? So we lost the war in a way. So it was a dictatorship, one of the oldest in Europe, and people were very poor and uneducated. Um, and the, and the normal, their normality of jobs was very big capitalism companies, capitalistic companies that would be also very paternalistic, so very low salaries and then extra services for the workers. Um, for Mondragon, that it's like that miracle, right? That we, there's a book that is called The Miracle of Mondragon. And um, they say that, well, there's, it was started or envisioned by a priest. Um, but the beauty of the story is that he spent, Arifmendi Arrieta, that it's a very bad last name for Anglophones, uh, Arifmendi Arrieta spent 10 years uh, educating the people and starting from very young age um, before he created the first cooperative. And how this is important is because he didn't expect cooperatives to arise just like mushrooms, right, out of uh, an educated population. He needed to educate and uh, prepare the ground for people to be ready to own their work and to people to be ready to participate in decision-making. But that only happens if you are educated and you have the resources to be critical-minded, right? So he spent more than 10 years just educating before starting a co-op. Then he created a whole microstructure that is later on known as Mondragon Group that was a solidarity uh, net that involved worker-owned co-ops in industrial work, uh, also a bank, a cooperative uh, worker-owned bank, um, a university that was the first cooperative that was created, and then also research and development centers to make sure that uh, innovation was made in-house. So, so yeah. And is, is this part of what's going to be discussed today at the panel discussion, the sort of conditions and environment that are conducive to uh, creating cooperatives? Yes, today we'll be going deeper, I guess, into the how the features, the how was it done, and also what the the part of the social and solidarity economy and the fostering of these features by government supporting programs and and how do we make that uh, possibility uh, real by uh, supporting from the public and private sectors, right? So a little bit be, uh, deeper into how do you create the good scenario for these spaces to be able or these ecosystems to be able to arise. We'll give out details of the panel discussion uh, in a moment. I just wanted to ask you one last question. You're also the Youth Ambassador with the International Cooperative Alliance. Do you have a message for Australian youth who are wishing to learn more about cooperatives um, as an alternative to corporate organisation? Yes. Unfortunately, co-ops are not uh, exempt of the lack of youth. I think uh, most of the sectors can share that youth isn't uh, the, the most uh, engaged or the most allowed to be engaged when we talk about representativity, because a lot of youth works, a lot of youth is active. Most of our youth are, are contributing to society, but unfortunately, we don't have, uh, in a lot of cases, the space to be uh, representative of our own voices. So I I uh, encourage you to reach out 
uh, to the cooperatives in your in your area in your sectors and uh, participate also at uh, at the global level. We have obviously the regional level in the Asia Pacific, but uh, we are. We don't have a lot of Aussie representatives in the International Cooperative Alliance Youth Network, so more than welcome to to share more and and, and get involved because uh, I think it's a it's a model that is very aligned with the values of the new generation. And I am 31, so I am not the younger youth. Um, there's people that coming behind me that are a lot more aligned with those values of solidarity and and social impact. So I encourage you to learn more about co-ops and get involved in the in the Australian uh, movement, but also at the worldwide level. Thank you so much for your time today. Can you give us details of the event and how people can get along? I believe it's a hybrid event and in person. Uh, yes, it's a hybrid event, and unfortunately, I don't have the website on my hand um, because I am—I've been terrible at following up my email. But uh, it's a hybrid event, and it happens today at three, and it's three to five, and it's going to be a conversation with not only me at the international level, but also the national level of co-ops and how everything is uh, possible to to join. So please uh, look it up and um, come join us uh, at least uh, online. Um, and learn more about uh, the worker-owned cooperative uh, model here in Australia and beyond. Thank you so much for your time this morning and uh, best of luck with the panel discussion. I know there's a few people from 3CR that will be getting along there. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And that well, was Anna. Uh, thank you. And that was Anna Aguere, co-founder and worker-owner at Tazabayes, a cooperative organisation working closely with Modrigon in Spain's northern Basque country. And she'll be speaking this afternoon at RMIT's forward panel event, Building the Social Economy, commencing at 3pm. And you can get your ticket uh, by heading on to the web uh, and just the name of the uh, event, Building the Social Economy Cooperatively the role of governments and educators. So uh, I think it's a free event. And as I said, it's uh, in-person and hybrid. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And I think I forgot to tell you our song from before. So I'll just um, let you know that we were listening to Dream Satisfaction, panel of judges. We're going to take a short break and then we'll come back to hear from the Trans Pride event. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. 
from the traditional black and white fear to an array of modern designs. All scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM on the dial. Now we're going to go to a segment from Jacob. This week, as you know, is Trans Awareness Week, a week that draws attention to the triumphs and challenges of the trans and gender diverse community. And last Sunday was Victoria's first ever Trans Pride March held in Melbourne's CBD, organised by Sasha Siddick, Rebecca Loveday and Miss Catalina. The event showcased a diverse range of speakers from all corners of the community. And of course, the 3CR team was out on action on site broadcasting the event live for four hours. Today, we're bringing you a couple of the speeches courtesy of Jacob and a big thank you to Jacob for piecing together this segment. Sorry, we've just got a technical issue there connecting with this segment, so we might have to take a little break and join you again. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. 
Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NEWS, NES, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NES sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NES is a 3CR supporter. We're going to play a song by PJ Harvey now. This is Love. But stick around when we come back. We'll be hearing from Jacob on Trans Awareness Week. with 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Thanks for sticking around. That was PJ Harvey with This Is A Love. And before the break, we were introducing our segment on Trans Awareness Week, which is a week that draws attention to the triumphs and challenges of the trans and gender diverse community. And as I said, last Sunday was Victoria's first ever Trans Pride March held in Melbourne CBD. 
and the event showcased a diverse range of speakers from all corners of the community. And this morning, we're going to bring you a couple of those speeches, courtesy of Jacob Gamble, who very kindly put together this segment uh, for our listeners. So we're going to go now to the Trans Pride March speeches. Victoria's first ever Trans Pride March was a celebration of trans identity and a declaration from the trans and gender diverse community that we are here and we are strong. Jay and Marin Wake are a mother-son duo who spoke on the power of loving your child for who they are. Jay is a 14-year-old young person who is proud to be transgender and a youth ambassador with Transcend Australia. Marin is a health and education consultant who works as an LGBTQIA child and family practitioner. Let's hear from them now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, please give way. I'm really emotional, actually. Um, I just wanted to start off by acknowledging the land we're all on today, but I also wanted to acknowledge the unceded lands of the Wadawurrung people, um, where I say Nayatni to the traditional owners of Wadawurrung land, where we get to live, work and play. I'm really grateful for that. Um, child abuser, someone who mutilates their child, a criminal who should be locked up. These are just a few things I get called as the proud parent of a trans child. To all those people who say this and think this, fuck you. You have no... You, you have no fucking idea. To the other parents, carers and supporters of transgender diverse and young people, I know this heteronormative binary world we live in can make this hard and scary, but when your child invites you into who they are, please, please love them, listen and learn. Love them as you always have, listen to who they are, even when this might change, and learn what you need to know. And part of that learning can be reaching out to this, this community who's here today. This community, believe me, and what, when your child offers who they are to you is an absolute gift. And that gift is like nothing else you could ever imagine. And the love that you'll get back is absolutely extraordinary. To the politicians, the rule makers, the colonised systems, stop talking about us and talk to us. You don't know our families. You don't know our kids or who we are. You must listen and learn. To the trans and gender diverse community and our squad. We're here because of you. Thank you for helping me save my child's life. I get the privilege of every day sitting and listening to young queer kids and I'm absolutely grateful to do the work I do. But to all the trans and gender diverse, non-binary young people who are here today, maybe listening, I know it's tough and I know the world can fucking suck big time. But know that we are here, I am here. I know at times it doesn't feel like it, but please, please stay here 
and keep looking for us, your family, and I promise you will find us, your community and your family. For everybody, you know, I have three words often, protect trans kids. Um, I would like to now introduce someone who every day teaches me how to be a wiser and better person, my son, Jay Wake. Hi, Maren, let's hear from Jay. Hi, I'm Jay, and I'm proud to stand here today as a trans person. Trans awareness is somewhere to start. It means being able to be me in all the places that matter, home, school, sport, and most importantly, in all my community. When I look around here today, I see my community, my future, and my family where I can be me. Transphobia hurts, and I wish it didn't exist. Being bullied makes it hard for me to exist in the world, and I know so many other kids who feel the same way. Schools need to do better to create a safe space for us. I hope one day we can find spaces where being trans isn't all that matters. As I say to my mom, there's so much more to me than just being trans. When I'm with my community, I can breathe easier and be me. To all the trans and other gender diverse kids here, we can stand together to change the world. If not us, then who? Thank you for having me. Another speaker was Shin, a community storyteller and creative, drawing from their lived experience as a neurodivergent trans mask person of colour, Shin finds joy in being open about his identity within community spaces. Welcome Shin! Hi everyone, so nice to see you all here, it's really important that people turn up to these things because, uh, you know, We've got to continue doing this in order for things to evolve and to, to change. And so it's, it, it means a lot. And I love seeing all the trans pride colors around. Um, but I stand here without any trans pride flag colors. But I am in the uh, trans mask uniform post-top surgery. Form fitting. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Form fitting white t-shirt, black jeans, you know, inside joke. Um, I wanted to speak uh, on the topic of um, intersectionality and, and why it's very important to continue talking about it and integrating it into our everyday lives and the conversations that we have with our friends and, and our families. Um, I've got to say from my own personal experience and moving through certain communities that I find myself in, uh, intersectionality isn't something that's as often talk, talked about these days, which um, I don't know, to me is a bit concerning, but it's also a good sign, um, you know, being an opportunity to, to keep growing and to keep talking with one another. Um, and I love talking. People who know me know that. I could talk forever. Um, so, you know, the feeling of uh, belonging and togetherness is, is really important in our community because, um, as a brown trans mask person, um, it can feel really lonely to keep working through um, all of the systems and you know socio-cultural things that um, I have to navigate, and you know it, it kind of hurts sometimes when people don't turn up 
and they should be here. Um, but nevertheless, you're all here, and that means a lot to me. Thank you. <laughs> so, I'm Filipino. My mother migrated to Australia when I was uh, five years old. I was left behind in Philippines for about three years, um, during which time I was actually physically neglected, uh, emotionally um, neglected. I was an abandoned child for a period of three years, so that was really rough. And then having moved to Australia, um, I had to find my own way through life. Uh, I grew up very independent and having to figure out everything on my own, including figuring out that I'm trans and I only really started that journey properly um, two years ago. So here's to testosterone. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very nervous. Now, in my culture, it is vital to honour our ancestors, the elders in our family, and their legacy. It is a crucial part of our existence to ensure that our ancestors and our elders live through us here and now. Respect and honour is really important to um, Filipino people. It's really important to a lot of people of colour and no matter where we go, no matter what we're doing, um, I believe that we, we carry this kind of mindset. And so um, it wouldn't be right to, to be up here today without acknowledging um, the, the freedom fighters and the people who um, actually fought for trans rights and queer rights um, back in the day. Everyone knows about Stonewall but there is, there is actually a deeper history to that even before that moment happened. And that is rooted in intersectionality and how a lot of these liberation movements, um, you know, gay rights, um, the Black Panthers, STAR, um, they all were fighting for their, you know, individual causes, but they were only able to achieve everything by coming together and working together and that's, I think, something that I would like to see a lot more of from our communities. And so, yeah, as I, as I said, I carry this practice of honor, honoring the past and respecting um, the past and trying to carry all of that um, wherever I go in spaces that I find myself in. Um, it is fairly scary to speak quite loudly, uh, publicly about a lot of things, especially as a trans person. Um, it's frightening. Kind of feels like you're putting yourself on the line every day. Um, but who else is gonna do it but us, really? So shout out to all of my trans sibs out here who continue doing the work because we do the most for our community and without trans people, I don't think we would have gotten so far as we are today, enjoying all the freedoms that we have to be able to have queer spaces, safe spaces to roam and to party and you know to express ourselves. And so, yeah, big shout out to Transgender Victoria. Um, 
for existing and for supporting trans people and all of the speakers here today. Now, I love to read. Um, I want to read an excerpt from a book that I've been reading. It's called One Dimensional Queer. Um, this is a concept that I would like to leave people with to have a think about because it's important to keep inspecting our own um, values and where we stand in our queerness. And one dimensional queerness is something that has kind of given rise to, to gay rights without the intersectional um, you know, views of how to actually fight for liberation. And so, yeah, I'll just have a read of one of the pages from this book. Um, this is from a chapter called Multidimensional Beginnings of Gay Liberation. Um, Stonewall and the Claims of Spontaneity. Why is Sylvia Rivera's retelling important for how we usually tell the story of gay rights? Her version is important precisely because it questions the idea that gay liberation arrived distinct from anti-racist liberation, an idea fostered by gay rights movement. Currently, the modern gay rights narrative is told as a struggle that inherits the successes of the US civil rights movement. Whereas the civil rights movement is framed under the US narrative as about race, the gay rights movement frames itself about sexuality's arrival into the world of rights as the latest development of freedom after the successes of civil rights. But this version of the story leaves us, leaves out crucial details. It omits the fact that in several important instances, particularly from the 1970 onward, the struggles over race, gender, class, and sexuality were imagined not separately, but simultaneously. It fails to mention that efforts at anti-racist and queer liberation have not moved in a linear fashion from bad to better, but have moved in many instances in a non-linear fashion that defies narratives of their progressive development. It overlooks the history of how queer and transgender activists from the 60s and 70s drew on a variety of anti-racist movements for inspiration and affiliation, the civil rights movement being only one of them. This version also conceals how queer liberation was not originally conceived in single issue terms and instead gave birth to a multi-vocal queer politics. Thank you. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. And if I could just ask everyone to do one thing, and it's just to, um, I don't know, if you can, <laughs> have a read of this book. I've been recommending this to everyone, everywhere. <laughs> I've done it about five times now. This would be the sixth. Um, again, it's called One Dimensional Queer, and it's by Roderick A. Ferguson. Um, he's a black queer activist and academic and his works are really really important so do a bit of education and have a read because we are here because of the people that he writes about in this book thank you And those were two speeches from Victoria's first ever Trans Pride March held last Sunday in the Melbourne CBD. 
We heard then from mother-son duo Jay and Merrin Wake speaking on raising trans kids, along with Shinobi, a community storyteller and creative who spoke on intersectionality. And if you're interested in following up on the book recommendation Shinobi made, that was One Dimensional Queer by Roderick A. Ferguson. If you'd like to learn more about Trans Awareness Week, head to the Minus 18 website for more information, www.18.org.au. And of course, you can always tune in to 3CR. We have a range of rainbow programs here, starting with In Your Face, Friday 4 to 5 p.m., PX Wanyu, Saturdays 1.30 to 2 p.m., Out of the Pan, Sundays 12 to 1, and of course, Queering the Air, which uh, Jacob is one of the co-hosts, Sundays at 3 to 4 p.m. You're listening to 3CR. We are at 855 a.m. on the dial and also live stream or podcast at www.3cr.org.au. We're going to go straight into our next interview right now and we're going to hop from the Pride March to a very different subject, but one we're all familiar with, the COVID pandemic. The pandemic has been with us for nearly two years and we are all fed up. But while government mandates have all but disappeared and everyday life feels more normal, the virus itself has not gone away and suddenly it seems people everywhere are popping up positive. Are we on the brink of a new wave or perhaps already riding it? And what should or can we do to protect ourselves? We're going to be speaking to vaccine specialist and associate professor Nicholas Wood from the University of Sydney. He joins me now to share the latest information on vaccines and variants. Welcome, Associate Professor Wood. Uh, good, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Can you give us a quick update on where the current numbers are in terms of active cases and how it compares to a month or a week ago? Yeah, so it's certainly on the rise um, across Australia um, and in states like New South Wales and Victoria. And and what we're seeing is the new variant. So there we had BA4 and BA5, which were sort of the Omicron family. And these are some new sub-variants and they've got letters of the alphabet like XBB and BQ1 and BR2. So so they're different mutations of the virus and, and that's what's certainly causing a, a rise in, in case numbers. It's a little bit hard to know exactly what the real numbers are because, you know, in the past people had a rat test and they were encouraged to register those um, in the system, but many people probably aren't registering their rats. So whatever the number we are counting is probably an underestimate. Sure. Now, you talked about the new variants. Um, what does that mean for Australians in practical terms? Yeah, I think what it means is that if you're due a booster and you haven't had a booster yet, uh, then you should go and get that one. So so a little bit hard to tell exactly how severe the new variants will be. Uh, countries like Singapore have had the variant for a little while and it appeared there that they probably weren't as severe as the earlier um, you know, original strain and the, and the Delta variant strain. So, so I think, yeah, what it means is if you are of the age where you're due the booster, um, and we can talk about those, then you should go, go and get that now uh, because what we believe is that a rise in your antibody generated by the vaccine will give you some protection against getting severe um, uh, COVID. And it could also mean that if you've 
feel like you've got immunity from a previous infection, that that might not necessarily be the case in relation to these new strains. That's right. So, so unfortunately, people can get repeated infections, and we know that from other viruses. Like you can get flu one year and then get flu again the next year. Mm. Uh, viruses like the rhinovirus that cause the common cold. Even if you get it once, you can certainly get that again because many of us have had you know colds um, several times over our lives. So, so yeah. So just because you've had one infection with COVID, that unfortunately is not going to give you really lifelong protection against another one. Okay, so in terms of um, getting up to date with uh, boosters and doses, I believe 95% of Australians over 16 have had two doses, but only 70% have had their third dose. And among those eligible for a fourth dose, the take-up's variable. Um, Can you explain why we're seeing this lag in people taking up the opportunity to have their full set of doses? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's probably a range of reasons. I think one of the key things is what we're calling vaccine hesitancy. So um, before this latest wave, people uh, thought the society was opening up, that I had my two doses, I might have had some COVID, but it wasn't too bad and, and, you know, I was able to go around normal life and the cases seemed to be, you know, on the the wane. Um, but now with cases rising, I think, and we know you can get repeat infection, um, the hesitancy probably has to go out the door a bit and, and go and get your booster dose. So I think that's one thing, the vaccine hesitancy. Um, I think probably also there's a bit of confusion out there with the rules around who's eligible for a booster and not. There aren't some new booster vaccines um, coming into town, uh, the bivalent vaccines, um, which... Um, is also a little bit confusing. People may not know too much about them, but uh, there's probably a range of reasons. Um, Vaccine mm. hesitancy, I think, is one of the top ones. And the statistics that I just mentioned, obviously, are overall uh, statistics. Um, if we broke those down into sort of subgroups, are there particular groups that are particularly under-vaccinated still? I know we heard a lot about um, First Nations communities having difficulty accessing or having particular reasons to be hesitant about having vaccines. Um, and, you know, there was problems within the aged care system and so forth. Uh, are there particularly vulnerable groups in terms of access to uh, vaccines that, that's affecting the uptake? Yeah, definitely, as you mentioned, the First Nations uh, people say, you know, they have a range of issues that may make it hard for them to get vaccines, and so, so that's one group that we want to work work with to, in, you know, increase the uptake. Other groups will be those of non-English speaking backgrounds who, um, you know, may lot all of obviously all of our um, statements put out by Targi and health departments are predominantly in English. So I think we need to make sure that um, we put out um, different languages and different language statements that are useful to explain to those whose English is not their first language can understand exactly what to do, what the booster is, how to get it, etc. So they're probably a a vulnerable group as well. Um, And as you mentioned, those that... uh, um, have some disability um, or in aged care who may not be able to actually get access to the vaccine. So, so they're the ones in, in society that um, will be, you know, hard. We're missing out a little bit on, and, and then need to encourage, uh, make it easier for them to get it. Mm. 
So for anyone listening, um, can we just now run through the different uh, age groups, perhaps uh, as a way of uh, breaking down the eligibility and explain or clarify, so there's no confusion, about how many (laughs) doses you're eligible for um, so people are clear and can sort of assess where they're at because there's so much discussion about three doses, four doses, and also different terminology about doses and booster shots like you sort of often see reference to a second booster and that's actually I think your fourth dose so it can get all a bit confusing um so five to 15 years can you tell us what that group is eligible for yep so the five to 15 year old kids um every every kid aged five to 15 needs to have had two doses um so it's a simple starting point um and then a booster dose, or if you like, a third dose in the kids' age and young adolescents, age 5 to 15, is particularly targeted at those who've got sort of underlying medical conditions, um, severely immunocompromised, um, and, and these are the groups who, if they do get the SARS-CoV infection, could get nasty COVID disease. So, so 5 to 15, everyone needs to have two doses. A third dose or is for those who've got underlying medical issues or immunocompromised. 16 and 17-year-olds. So 16 and 17-year-olds, again, need to have two doses and then they're also recommended a booster dose, so that's a third dose. Um, And for those who are 16, 17 and, again, have the underlying immunocompromised or medical conditions or live in the disability care they should have a fourth dose, which is the second booster. And then the adult category, once we hit 18. Yep. Uh, uh, eight, yeah. yep. 18 and over. Yeah, again, everyone needs to have had two doses or should be recommended to have two doses. And, and like you said earlier, around about 95% of us have already had the two doses. But a uh, third dose or the first booster is recommended for everyone over the age of 18. Um, and then when we go, um, so any, basically anyone up to 30 should probably have had three doses, two doses plus the booster. And then from 30 and above, um, uh, you know, you can have that. Uh, again, everyone has had two doses. And from 30 to 49, so, so again, this is confusing. Everyone above 30 should have three doses. And from 30 to 49, you can have a fourth dose. It will give you a protection, but certainly everyone above 50 should have had their two primary courses, which they've already had, a first booster and a second booster, so that's a fourth dose. Uh, I'm going to say that again. <laughs> um, so basically in, anyone over the age of 50 um, should have had uh, four doses is, is the recommendation from Otagi, and that's designed to uh, you know, give them good protection against severe disease. Um, between 30 to 49, you can have that um, fourth dose. Um, uh, the, you know, the risk-benefit profile is, is still pretty good, but you, you know you don't get as sick if you're a healthy person between with no underlying medical conditions. But but you know there's no harm in having a, um, a fourth dose between 30 and above. And if really. people are travelling overseas, is it more important for them to have that uh, extra yeah. dose? I think it probably is because. You know, you're overseas, you go to foreign, you might not speak the language, um, you don't really know where the healthcare is, how it works. Um, 
so yeah, I think it would be important to get that um, those because you don't really want to get sick while you're overseas and, and ruin exactly. your holiday. So, yeah, so a fourth dose is, is good. Now, there are the, the new ones in town, are the uh, bivalent vaccines. Yes, tell us about so, those. So these are made by Moderna, and, and I think Pfizer will be available in mid-December. And, and what they've done is they've taken the original COVID strain and they've mixed that with the uh, Omicron variant. So it's got... You imagine the dose is, say, 50 micrograms. Half of that is the original strain and the other half is the Omicron strain. Um, so that, on balance, is probably a slightly better vaccine than the original uh, strain vaccine. Both of them will give you a boost in your antibody levels, but there's just a slightly better boost in the antibody levels to the Omicron um, variant with the bivalent vaccine. So bivalent just means two bits to it, if you like, um, Omicron and the original strain. And that's um, a Pfizer or Moderna bivalent? That's right, yeah. They're both, they're both made um, bivalent ones. The Moderna one is registered. Um, both are provisionally approved by the TGA for use as a booster dose. Um, and I think the Moderna one is available now and Pfizer should be available very soon. And who should be getting AstraZeneca or Novavax? So if you, if you are, um, have had an allergic reaction to Pfizer or Moderna or you've had a, a reaction from a previous dose of Pfizer or Moderna, then um, you should go for Astra, AstraZeneca or Novavax. Um, or if you prefer not to have that sort of vaccine construct that Pfizer or Moderna are, then you could go for an AstraZeneca or Novavax. So they're both... Um, those other two are available for use as a booster dose as well. And uh, plenty of vaccines are around. Yes. Um, yeah, so it's just a matter of, of you know, getting onto it and putting yeah. it on the Christmas to-do list. <laughs> yeah, and right. it takes yeah. about three to four weeks to get maximum protection after you've had it. So if you are travelling... Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Traditionally, we um, measure antibody levels at sort of the one-month mark um, and we sort of think that's when it's it's sort of peaking and then it will slowly wane. But it could be a bit faster. It could be two weeks. But, yeah, what you're saying is if, if you're going to go to Europe or North America or somewhere else in, in January, um, good to get the booster dose in now so that you've got peak antibodies when you're travelling. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. We really appreciate you uh, sharing that information and um, helping us all make sense of which booster we need to get and uh, which vaccine. Great. Many thanks for talking. And that was Associate Professor and Vaccine Specialist Nicholas Wood from the University of Sydney with an update on the new COVID-19 strains and vaccine eligibility. Uh, inquire at your local pharmacy or check out the Vic Health website to find out where to get your jab. And there's plenty of information on the federal uh, government website www.health.gov.au and of course the Vic um, Health website as well and Professor Wood has published an article in the conversation which we will put the link for on our website if you're interested in reading more. We're going to go to a song now, Whisper in My Ear by Pavin. And when we return, we'll be hearing from our final guest, Dr. Vivian Gerrand, about the relationship between material objects and resilience. Stay tuned.
talo falava malo elele kiorana fakalo falahiatu kiora isa bolivinaka aloha womenjeka and hello this is px fano on 3cr 855 am community radio the voices of our community talking kwe pacifica talking us saturday afternoons 1:30 to 2 o'clock only on 3cr Join us as we share the stories of our diverse people, from arts and culture to news and opinions and information about our community, for our community. As a collective, we are all proud Pacifica diaspora, advocating for our people from the LGBTQIA spectrum. This is presented by the Pacific X Collective and produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Voting for the Music Victoria Awards is now open to the public. With 12 public voted categories and 60 nominees to choose from, this is your chance to vote for your favourite Victorians and go in with a chance to win a prize. Award categories to vote on include Best Group, Song, DJ, Venue, Festival and more. Voting closes Monday 21st of November. For more info on how to vote now, head to musicvictoria.com.au. Music Victoria Awards, presented by PBS 106.7 and Triple R 102.7. Music Victoria is a 3CR supporter. And you're back listening with 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We were going to play you a nice song, but uh, we've decided to go straight to our next interview because we have Dr Vivian Gerrand actually with us in the studio, which is so exciting, and we want to give her as much time as possible to tell us about her work. So we're now going to hear about another way of managing COVID and the pandemic through resilience and our connection with material objects. Dr Vivian Gerrand is part of a research team exploring the relationship between objects and people in conditions of adversity. In particular, looking at things which have supported the mental and physical health of different sections of the community during the pandemic. Dr Gerrand is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Centre for Resilient and Inclusive Societies at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin University in Melbourne. Welcome, Vivian. Thank you, Claudia. So lovely to have you with us. Now, Everyday Objects and Resilience, can you tell us how this project began and why was it considered necessary to explore? So this project really began um, coming out of some of the work that it was being done during the COVID lockdowns by the Centre for Resilient and Inclusive Societies where I work. So as part of their youth digital wellbeing or youth and wellbeing in a digital age cohort within the centre, 
we were running some living labs with young people to understand more about their experiences of living through COVID. And in some conversations that we had in those breakout Zoom rooms, um, some, I guess, concerns emerged that were hard to actually articulate because of language barriers or because maybe it was hard to talk about particular things. And it seemed that talking about things was actually easier than trying to ask about experiences. So that was where the sort of the idea came from. And then with my colleague, Dr. Kim Lam, we started to think about developing this into a project where we'd actually focus on the things that supported different sectors of the community. So young people, older people, anyone really, as long as they're over 16, um, to find out the, the range of different experiences without, I suppose, re-traumatising people by asking them to talk about what might have been traumatic experiences. Mm. So it's a really um, the good way of sort of getting into what can be a, a sensitive topic or, or one even that people haven't necessarily even consciously articulated or thought about. That's right. And we soon discovered there was a wealth of literature on objects and it's actually a really interesting kind of methodology that's been employed by a lot of people in different areas, object-oriented ontologies and thinking about also things like forced migration through the lens of material objects. That's quite a fruitful developing field. So we've, we've had a look at some of the literature and it's really exciting. So it's great to be able to try and bring some of that into this space. Yeah, because it's really interesting when you see the title for this uh, project and exhibition, which you'll tell us about. It sounds quite simple on one level, everyday objects, and we all have them, but there's actually quite a lot of complexity and it's it's quite multi-layered. Um, so tell us a little bit more in detail about the project and are you looking at resilience with any particular target groups or generally? We're looking at it fairly generally. We do. We are working with this, uh, the Centre for Multicultural Youth, so we have um, youth researchers as part of our team, um, but we're not specifically focusing on youth. Youth is one of many cohorts, and so we have had submissions of objects from people of all walks of life. The aim of the object is to understand things from the point of view of what we call multi-systemic resilience, which is a kind of resilience that thinks about systems and structures, not about individualised resilience which tends to be quite predominant when we use the term resilience. That sort of neoliberal idea that you bounce back. It's an individualised, atomised thing. That's not what we're looking at. We're looking at what sort of systems and structures can support people. We're thinking about resilience in these ways and we're, un we're trying to understand the material dimensions of that kind of resilience. So one of the things that's interesting, I think, and one of the reasons it's so important for us to think about different sectors of the community is to highlight the kind of disparities also between the different experiences of lockdown. You know, people that were in small flats versus people that were in larger homes, um, different geographies that were experienced in lockdown contributed to very, very different experiences. So we're very interested to, to tease out all of those nuances to understand better how those sorts of material realities determined people's physical and mental health in lockdowns. Can you talk about some of those differences? Have you already um, started analysing your data? So some, yeah, so some of the objects, and we, when, we, when people submit photos of objects through our portal, we ask them to submit a short paragraph or even story of how the object supported them and also what their living circumstances were, um, just to get a sense of the different material realities people were experiencing in addition to the objects they submit. And some people were in tiny flats, so they talked about, and then some people also talked about moving during the period of lockdown and how the movement from a tiny flat to a larger home changed their relationship to particular objects. Um, one submission was a woman who um, had found that a weighted blanket was very helpful for her when she was in a tiny flat. When she moved into a larger dwelling, she no longer felt she needed it. So that's just one example. Are there any other objects that have stood out to you thus far in the project? 
a lot of people have been submitting, I guess, electronic objects, things like um, laptops and, and games, so a lot of gaming um, technologies that have been really supportive. I think we often, when we hear about gaming, we think about it in terms of something that might be a problem, but actually what we found in this project, it's often a source of resilience for many of the participants. And the actual approach that you've taken is also um, really interesting. It's labelled a democratic participation process. Can you explain that to our listeners? A democratic participation process um, involves people being able to submit, be anonymous, um, talk about their experiences without actually having any kind of, I suppose, judgment placed on them in terms of who they are and their identities. They're free to submit things and talk about them under any pseudonym they wish. Um, their objects are respected equally. It doesn't really matter where they've come from, so they're all portrayed in the same well, online at the moment gallery space and some of them will be featuring in our exhibition next week, which opens on Monday. And in terms of the youth um, cohort, you've followed a model um, that actually involves them in the co-design right. of the project. Can so you from share the, a little bit From the that? beginning, as I said, it comes out of these living lab roundtables that we ran with the Centre for Resilient and Inclusive Societies involving the Centre for Multicultural Youth. And so as part of our team, when we first, um, Kim Lam and I had the idea for the project, we, we presented the project to the Centre uh, for Multicultural Youth and we invited interested members of the centre to join us and they did. So that was how it started out and then we, we developed the project proposal together and we've continued to work together on the project, including in the design of the exhibition. And I noticed there was a statement in the project proposal um, where you were talking about focusing on mental health as a key issue and that was identified as important for young people in terms of something that they experienced disproportionately during uh, lockdowns and the ongoing pandemic. I just wanted to ask you about a particular statement um, that talked about the fact that it was important for young people and the role that uh, material interconnectedness plays in reducing some forms of polarisation, hate and mental ill health through rethinking human society through a prism of its material relations. Can you unpack that for us? <laughs> That's yeah. That's a that's an interesting um, statement that we made in our proposal, and definitely what we were trying to get across there is the idea that, I suppose, in the world of lockdown, when we're so isolated from each other and we're spending a lot of time online, yet we're all very much in particular places that are material. We may not have access to each other's material spaces, and so often that dimension is not something we're paying so much attention to, yet that's the dimension that actually connects us all as well. And so I think it's been in a, in a, in a situation like lockdown when we are very isolated physically and geographically, there is actually, there has been a polarisation I think as well that's occurred partly from that experience and also partly from the way that online um, spaces are kind of determined by different configurations that tend to isolate people as well across different lines. And so thinking in terms of these everyday realities and objects can bring people back together in terms of their shared experience, but also, I guess, by paying attention to the differences and having an appreciation for the lived realities of others through thinking about their objects in this way. So it's, in a way, taking us away from some of the, um, the identifications with particular forms of maybe even politics and thinking more in terms of resources. I mean, resources are political, of course, but shifting the attention towards materials helps us think through, I suppose, some of these nuances. 
I'm not sure if that, if that unpacks that statement. Well, I think people need to get along to the exhibition and see some of these objects. Um, the exhibition's opening on Monday, you said, and That's whereabouts right. is it? It's at Deakin Downtown, which is a space in the Docklands. It's in, on Collins Street in the Docklands, so it's up um, on the 13th floor. So it's a bit of a, we're going to have some posters around to show people how to get there once they get to, once they get to this Docklands place. Um, it's going to be in the gallery space at Deakin Downtown, so we're really lucky to have that space and we're going to be organising it so that it's like walking into someone's living room in lockdown. So, Wow. We will have the official opening on the 23rd of November. The, the exhibition will, however, be open from the 21st to the 25th. It's fantastic, and I'll put the uh, details of how people can get along on our website, but also um, you'll still have your call for objects We do, open. so we're still welcoming objects, and we've currently got almost 40 objects. We're continuing to accept objects until we reach about 100 objects. So if anyone's interested in submitting an object, we'd love to, we'd love to see it. Yeah, and Thank we'll you. have to um, have you back to, to talk about their findings once the project's complete. We're almost out of time. Um, I just wanted to ask you one final question. Last time we had you on the show, you were here in a different capacity as a member of the Escolta Women's Writing Group, and that was something that you took up during lockdown. Uh, it was a community of, of women writing together as a means to cope and create community. So I wondered um, how working as a researcher and considering the objects around you, um, what reflections have you had and what objects have meant something to you? Oh gosh, Claudia, there are so many and indeed um, that particular writing group, the meetings that we held via Zoom and then the publication we produced together, that was definitely for me a source of material strength in the lockdowns. But there were so many things that have come to mind for me, even things like clothing, like just wearing particular items of clothing that reminded me of being in different parts of the world. I've had the, I've had the privilege to live um, in Italy, so I wore certain things that I'd bought while living there. I'd dress up, for example, to go to the market because that was an opportunity to kind of mark the day, to have a small social interaction with someone at the market, that sort of thing. That really helped me. Music was another thing that really helped me. So sound objects are other things that we've had quite a few submissions of, people using music mm. to help them. Yeah, it's a really fascinating entry point into um, people's experience. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about our project. We're really excited and happy to share it with you. Thank you. That was Dr Vivian Gerin from the Centre for Resilient and Inclusive Societies, Deakin University, talking about objects for everyday resilience, the relationship between everyday objects and resilience. For more information about the project and the exhibition, you can head to uh, the website www.criscrisconsortium.org forward slash objects for everyday resilience. And as Vivian said, the exhibition is on at Deakin Downtown in the Melbourne CBD from November 21st to 25th. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for joining us and thanks to all our guests and thank you listeners. Now we're on to Stick Together. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.